Well, we're in Acts chapter 2 tonight. Oh, I've got some more good stuff, some more things to generate some thoughts. Uh, let me ask a question as we begin tonight. Well, let me pray, and then I'll ask a question. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this good day, for this presence, for your presence that has just been here all day, Lord. I thank you for the great time we had this morning. I thank you for this evening. I pray that you would just be with our youth that are meeting tonight. Let your presence rest upon them. And I pray you'd be here with us tonight, Lord. Let your word be alive. Let it be powerful. I just pray, Lord, that we would contemplate things and dig deep and and just think about what you are telling us here in your word. And Lord, uh, when it's necessary uh, for some of us that have read this account many times, um, where we have developed an idea that is um, in some way askew, Lord. It's not exactly what, uh, what happened or what you need us to understand um, about the meaning of different things. Holy Spirit, you correct us. Um, we, we, we're, we're humble enough to say <laughs> we weren't there and we have, uh, we have imagined things and seen things and heard things in a particular way. And Lord, we want you to, you to direct us and to form in us Everything that you need to have in us so that we can be the people that you need us to be in the world we live in today. None of your word, Father, is without profit in this world today. And certainly the book of Acts, that's true of it, Lord. So we ask you to guide us. Holy Spirit, we're reading about the initial day of Pentecost. I think it would just be a a great error for us to do that and not open ourselves to your presence in our lives today. If they needed your presence they needed your power if they needed the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In that day, to build the church, we certainly still need it today. In fact, maybe even more so. So, Lord, I pray that every heart would be open to you. I pray that the uh, solidity of your word would be so convicting and so real and so genuine. Lord, I don't want anything. Lord, I never have wanted anything that was man-made or that was empty or, or just an empty tradition. I love rich, biblically-centered traditions, Father, that carry a warmth and a goodness and, a, and a, an anointing from you in them, Father. And so, Holy Spirit, you do that tonight. We pray for each one that's in the room or those online that might be needing physical healing tonight. We pray that your virtue and your goodness would rest upon them, Jesus. We pray specifically for Ken Sunberg tonight, who had a pacemaker defibrillator put in today. Lord, I pray that he would rest well tonight, come home tomorrow, and just be completely well. Uh, we pray for Richard Bickmore, Lord, who is continuing to take treatments for cancer, Lord. We pray for Jeff French tonight, who is just very, very ill, Lord. We need a miracle in his life. Lord, others that I may neglect to remember, but you certainly know. We pray that you would minister to each one of them. I pray for healing. I pray for deliverance, Lord, because that's who you are. I, I love the conversation I had today, Lord, about uh, what was your will and what's not. And Lord, anything that comes... After the fall in the garden, Lord, that's not your will. That's, uh, that's mankind's free will expressing itself and sin entering the world. Your design was that we would live forever, that we would never grow sick. We would never age. We'd never be separated from you. And one day we'll be restored to that completely, Lord. And so between now and then, use us. Let your word form in us everything that it needs to do so that we can be used of you to bring the kingdom of God into people's lives. We love you and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So now let me ask you a question. How many of you grew up or have for at least 10 years been in a Assemblies of God, Church of God, Pentecostal, some, you've been around, charismatic. I mean, these are all terms that mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But you, you, you feel pretty familiar with those 
those kinds of things. Let me see your hands. Anybody? Uh, John and Ebony didn't raise their hands. That's good that our deacons are, or, or Pastor Dan either, you know. Y'all better pay attention. All right. Good. I think that was everybody in the room. All right. So the reason that I asked that question is because with that has come, I think, a lot of what well, we've heard this story, this account, this Acts 2 narrative. We have heard it. Uh, we have read it. We have heard sermons about it. We have uh, been around it many, many, many times. Everybody say amen to that. Those of you online, I'm sure that that's, uh, that's true for you as well. Tonight, I want to try to bring out some things that are absolutely there, absolutely in the scripture, and absolutely in the sort of the historical precedences of the day that these things occurred that I don't think are quickly observable uh, in the story, and they may also not be things that you that you would draw out in just because we don't live in the day and time that they did. So I want to show you a couple of things. I want to begin uh, right there in Acts chapter two. Uh, I want to take our time moving through this. I want to start with verse four. And it says, "And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance." I want to spend just a few moments talking about that. Uh, we touched on it last week. Uh, this idea of, of the Greek word glossaleia. Glossa means, uh, has to do with the tongue. Glossaleia, uh, a, a language, uh, a sound that comes because of the tongue. I mean, that would be the, the simplest understanding of the direct interpretation of the word. What is it? Well, what was it that happened that day? There are a couple of different theories. And let me share those with you real quickly. Um, some, well, let me just give you all of the different possibilities. That, that these are languages. These are languages that are spoken on the earth at that time. And the people that are being used of God, they're speaking in known languages of that day that they didn't know. Um, by the way, that's what I believe. All right. Now, the others are that they were speaking in tongues and the Holy Spirit is interpreting it in the ears of the people. So they're hearing them. We hear them speak. You know, it didn't say they are speaking. We hear them speak in languages. So there is a little vein of theology, theologians that believe that, no, they were just speaking in tongues, but the interpretation sounded to them like their language, that the miracle didn't happen in the tongues of the speakers, but in the ears of the hearers. Uh, others that, uh, that, that, that this is, um, well, those are the two predominant ones. Let me just stop with those. I don't think there's any real um, basis for the second one. I think the language, the, the syntax of the language and the people's response and the list of nations pretty much indicates that these guys were speaking, these guys and girls, men and women, were speaking in languages that were of that contemporary to that day that they had never learned. This wasn't, uh, this wasn't, and forgive me for using a very unflattering term, this wasn't tongues that is... Um, not a language, and there is a, there is a reference to that in, in Corinthians, uh, in the New Testament, in a couple of places that talks about uh, a language that only God understands. There's, there's room for that as well, but this wasn't that. This seems to have been a language. Esta es una lengua. Esta lengua es la lengua de español. Entiendo? No? You don't understand? Okay. But that was a language. I would, now, I was speaking in a tongue. You got it? That's what we believe was happening on the day of Pentecost. 
Just because you didn't understand it didn't mean that... Now, somewhere out there, there's a Spanish speaker and go, that was terrible Spanish. <laughs> it was good enough for this crowd. I can tell you, all right? Now, um, but the point is this, that, that on this day, there were these 120 gathered. We talked last week about... Whether they were in the upper room or in the temple, I think that's a fascinating what if. We, we touched on that last week. Uh, the more I've studied it now, and I've been, I've been looking at uh, a few other things uh, other than Brother Horton's stuff that I referred last week, um, I, think, I think that's what it was. Personally, I, I, I agree with Brother Stanley Horton that I don't think they were in, I think the upper room was their headquarters. I think they were at the temple when that happens. Uh, such a crowd gathered so quickly and so many people and the response was what it was uh, that it's just a fascinating what if and it brings I, I'm not confused by that at all oh I don't like that the story may be different no I like that the story might be might be different I like it when I find things that make sense with the historical narrative and the scripture and so but we don't have any absolute way to know but here's what I want you to know what sort of wants you to notice that, first of all, God uses these people to speak in languages that instantly, almost instantly draw a very large crowd. And the thing that they are saying is not only understood, it's edifying to the believers. But what I want you to notice is that when they continue to speak, the, the, the people that are hearing it uh, begin to claim that they're drunk. Now, that also corresponds to what 1 Corinthians 14.23 says about uninterpreted tongues. Listen to this, all right? That, that um, let me, let me, I got to flip over there. Uh, let's see if I've got that where I can get to it without having to change the whole, uh, no, I got to change books here to get there. John, would you mind walking across the hall and strangling the uh, youth pastor? Apparently it's somebody's birthday. It may be, but that is clearly the youth pastor's voice I hear screeching the... And he's just looking at Incense Sue, because John will, you know, yeah. All right. Let's just strangle the life out of the youth pastor. It'll help me on many, many fronts. No. All right. In case any of you don't know, that's my son-in-law, all right? So I just want to make sure that... Um, 1 Corinthians 14, 23, listen, it says, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? All right, now, the... Um, so there's a couple of things that happen here. Um, I believe that this crowd gathers... And there are people, we're going to talk about the different languages in a moment, uh, the different places that these, these languages are from. But there are people there that aren't from those languages. You with me? Uh, there are, let's see, let me see if I've got a number here. Um, there are, uh, I didn't do a count of how many nations are listed here. But there are, there's about 15 to 20 nations listed and they are speaking in the languages of those places. It is clear that they're not speaking Greek or Aramaic because those were, those were languages that 
perhaps would have crossed over to even more people. So these are individual languages, and they're a little bit unique languages. They're not, and I'm going to show you a list in a minute about how many people or how many people could have been in the city and those things. But it would seem that not everybody there understood the languages. Because watch this. If, if, um, if Hector or Miriam Lozano were here, all right, and if I just in mid-sentence habla en español y no, y no inglés, nada, nunca. And I just did the rest of the class in Spanish, eventually you would go, all right, something's going wrong with Pastor Roy. Or what if I spoke a language that you didn't recognize at all? Maybe I spoke um, uh, Ukrainian, Russian, uh, that might be recognizable. Some, some African dialect that is completely different in, in, the, in the sounds and in the vowels. Eventually, one of you might say what? One of two things. What's in that cup? Or what? Or he's... Something's happened. He's... He's breaking down. I mean, I knew that son-in-law would do it to me eventually. I just didn't think it would happen that quick. I think that's what's happening on the day of Pentecost. When we read and others thought that they were drunk. Now, it's interesting that when you, when, when you look at the language for the word drunk, um, it, there's a really interesting, watch this. When Peter stands up and he says, these men, there's a really interesting... Um, Possibility. I got to go down here in my notes and find out where that was. Um, I tell you what, I'll come back to it. Let, let me come back to that because it's a really good point and I want to do it in time with some other stuff. Rem Josh, remind me to talk about drunk people, all right? Before, I don't want to miss it. Um, there are all of these languages that are being spoken. Now, the result of those who understand is total amazement. They recognize either from the clothing or from the, in some, in some way they know that they are all Galileans. Uh, and yet they hear them speaking in their own languages. We, we believe that there are, uh, the full 120 are speaking in languages. There are, there are many, and let me just give you the list, all right? Um, when Luke writes Judea, he almost certainly includes all of Syria. In fact, all the territory of David and Solomon from the Euphrates River to the river of Egypt, that's to the south in Genesis 15, 18, would include Judea. Then he says Cappadocia. I'm going through this list later on. When This is when Peter stands up and he says, men of, men of Jerusalem, does he say Jerusalem or Judea? I have to look. Why do you say these are drunk? All right. Before we get to that, he, he, and it talks about the different languages. Uh, this great crowd, I'm, I'm running ahead of myself, excuse me. Um, he says Cappadocia. Cappadocia is a large Roman province in the central part of Asia Minor. I'm going to go through this list so you can see how diverse this group is. These aren't like neighboring states around Jerusalem. Uh, Pontus was a Roman province in northern Asia Minor on the Black Sea. That's a long ways. Um, Asia, uh, Asia was the Roman province comprising the western third of Asia Minor. Phrygia was an ethnic district, uh, part of the province of Asia, and part of it is in the province of Asia, and part of it is in Galatia. 
So a very different sort of a language. Pamphylia is a Roman province, uh, province on the other end, on the south coast of Asia Minor. Egypt, you know where Egypt is, that's down to the south, had a large Jewish population. Uh, in 38 AD, the Jewish philosopher Philo said that there were about a million Jews that were living in Egypt at that time, in Alexandria alone. Cyrene is one of the places listed. It was a district in Africa, west of Egypt. So now we've gone from Asia Minor all the way to the south, below Israel, into Egypt. Now to the east of that, um, we, have, we have picked up Cyrene. Uh, others present in Jerusalem were visitors from Rome, which might have included both Jews and Gentiles, converts to Judaism. Still others were from the island of Crete, that's mentioned, and from Arabia, the district east and southeast of Judea. It says that all of those kept hearing in their own languages, quote, the wonders, the mighty, magnificent, sublime deeds, that's what wonders means, of God. They may have been, uh, this may have been exclamations of praise, God, you're great, God, you're wonderful, God, you rule. We don't know exactly what the language was that they were saying, and yet... There doesn't seem to be any uh, discourse. It's not preaching. This isn't narrative. These are, these are extolling the deeds of God, and they hear them in their own languages. There is this incredible response. It's almost like that this crowd gathers all around them. Now, there are many languages, as I said, but there must have been some there that didn't speak any of those languages because they hear what sounds to them to be silliness, gibberish. And those are the ones that say, others said, these are drunk. They, they took it like the, like the ravings of drunk people, like, like, like gibberish. And I don't know if you've been around drunk people, but, but I have, and they don't always talk real well. Uh, because they, they didn't understand the purpose of what was going on, they quickly believed that it didn't have any purpose. And they then began to make fun of them and to mock them in, a, in what can only be described as a scornful way. Saying that the 120 had too much wine. Now, here's what's interesting, and here's what I wanted to get to. The, the word for wine there in Acts chapter 2 is the Greek word glaukos, which is the word we get glucose, like the sugar in your blood. It's the same word, root. It's not the ordinary word for wine in the New Testament. Uh, and some say it represents... Uh, an intoxicating wine made from a very sweet grape. But there is a definite evidence in other places that indicate that this use designates what, what theologians would call sweet new wine. In other words, unfermented grape juice. Now you say, well, why would people say that they were drunk on that? That's what I wanted to get you to. Lots of usage of that word, that particular Greek word, that aren't referring to a fermented grape beverage, but rather the, the unfermented, freshly squeezed grape juice. That's the best way I can describe it to you. The, the reason that that's interesting is that if that's what this crowd is saying, is that these men are 
They're too religious to have taken anything fermented. And they have, they have made themselves crazy with this. The, the mock is even deeper if they say they're drunk on stuff that doesn't get you drunk. You see what I mean? They're acting out of their heads. And that's sort of the, sort of the sense of this that we don't just think they're intoxicated. We, we think that they're crazy. And it makes the jest even that much more of a slam on them. The, the interesting thing about that is that Peter then stands up in this section. And the same guy who had denied the Lord just not that long before this, who was intimidated by a lot of things, he stands up and he begins in Acts chapter 2 to quote Joel's prophecy. Let me get back to Acts 2 right quick. Verse 13, but others mocking said they are filled with new wine. That's why the new wine word is used. And it says, but Peter standing up with the 11, verse 14, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Now, can anybody tell me why that's significant? Why the third hour of the day is significant? Well, let me tell you, all right? It's because even fermented wine in that day wasn't very strong. It was not like wine today. And in those days, they had no way of distilling alcohol or fortified. They didn't make brandy. They didn't make cognac. They didn't make, you know, hard liquor. They fermented stuff in a natural way. And it was much less alcoholic than the stuff that we have today, even in the wine. Their strongest drinks were wine or beer, and they made it a practice to dilute the wine even then further with water. That's why when Jesus turns the wine, the water into wine at the wedding of Canaan Galilee, it was undiluted. And that's, it, and it, I absolutely believe it was fermented. I, I'm, I'm not one of those people that think that Jesus just made grape juice because it just doesn't make sense. All right. I'm, I'm a teetotaler. I don't drink it all. I don't think you should either. But that's my personal conviction. All right. Be glad to talk to you about it at length if you want to. Now, um, but in those days, it was even less intoxicating than what we have. And because it's just the third hour of the day, that's about nine in the morning, by the way. Peter is saying, look, <laughs> they haven't had time. They hadn't been up long enough to get drunk enough to act like this. That's what he's saying. It would, you, you could only get this kind of drunk if it is indeed intoxicated that they're speaking of, much later in the day after having been drink, drinking, having, after having drunk, after having been drinking a while. I guess it's, I don't know if that's right or not. You know what I mean. <laughs> you got to start early and keep doing it a while. This is just too much transparency, but I got a phone call. I started getting texts from a relative of mine this morning at about 4.45, and this individual reached me about 8.30, and I could tell that they had started early <laughs> or had never gone to bed. I think that was probably what had happened, and uh, this individual was well, well, they, 
they were speaking in an unknown tongue and it was and it wasn't the Holy Spirit okay it was a spirit um, but what Peter is saying is that listen that they haven't had time they haven't been at this long enough now and that it's absurd to think that they were drunk on wine there's an interesting thing that takes place here in this Peter goes down through this and I just want you to I want you to think about this this moment. I want you to dwell on this for a moment. And I want to see if I can recreate it in the way that I was thinking this afternoon as I was going back through this. That, okay, you're a devout believer. You're a Jewish believer. Um, you're not, you may not be Israeli. Do you understand? I'm sorry, you are a believer in Judaism, but you may not be Jewish. That's what I'm trying to say. You may be African. You may be you may be from some of these other lang- nations and you've been, you've been won to Judaism by, by the law and by the synagogue and by the different things that they've done. It is believed that when this takes place, there may have been upwards of a million people in Jerusalem. The Feast of Pentecost the, is one of the three feasts that, are, that it is required to be worshipped it is required that those who recognize the feast do so in Jerusalem. This is one of the three times in the calendar year, in the Jewish calendar, where Jews are expected to come back to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And so it's believed that there may have been a million Jewish worshipers in the city uh, on the day that we call the day of Pentecost. That's a pretty good coincidence, isn't it? That's supposed to be funny, all right? You're, it's not coincidence at all that on the day that the Holy Spirit, which is poured out because of the promise of Jesus, that listen, I'm, I'm going to go to the Father. It's better for you that I go away because if I don't go away, he, the comforter, will not come to you. But if I leave, I'll send him to you. And that he will endue you with power, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, after that the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses. Peter stands up, this event takes place, the believers begin to speak in these languages, known languages. A great crowd gathers, and then Peter stands up among them. Now, this is a test, all right? I'm going to ask you a question, and this is a test. What was the gift, according to 1 Corinthians, and Dan, you be quiet, all right? What was the gift Peter was operating in when he said, Men of Israel, these are not drunk as you say, for it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And upon my servants and upon my handmaidens, and that day will I pour out my spirit. Which gift is Peter operating in? Nope. 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 He's not. Well, we, nope. (laughs) Ah, who said it? Prophecy. Now, why do we not assume prophecy? And I think it's because we misinterpret what the gift of prophecy is. That's why I asked you the question. We sometimes think prophecy is foretelling. Tomorrow at noon, it's going to rain. Bring your umbrella. All right? 
That's the way we think of what prophecy is. But New Testament and even Old Testament prophecy is simply bringing the word of the Lord to a particular situation as directed by the Spirit. Peter stands up under the absolute anointing of the Holy Spirit and prophesies. Now, John, you say, well, he's just quoting the Scripture. Yes, he is speaking the Scripture. No, I, I just, and the reason that I'm taking a moment to do that is that I think sometimes, in just a moment, we're going to talk about the purpose of the, of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it is, now listen, of all of the things that Paul lists, and, and I can, we can go through and look at the scriptures, all of the gifts, all of them pale in, 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 if you ask me, let me say it like this. If you ask me to prioritize the gifts of the Spirit, prophecy is the greatest. Prophecy is the one that others fall under the category of. Bringing the word of the Lord into a given situation under the inspiration. It, it's in a known language. It's in the language of the person you're speaking to. It sounds like you. It functions through you. It is the most needed as it relates to being a witness uh, I think in the world that we live in today is the prophetic voice at your workplace, in your marriage, at your school, in your, in your business dealings, that, that God's word in a given. And watch this. And listen, I'm not picking fun at anybody's tradition other than mine. I have been, and, and if you want to compare stories, I'd be glad to. I've been more deeply in, entrenched in, more deeply immersed in old-time Pentecost, I'm, I'm like Paul. I speak in tongues more than you all, all right? I, I directed, to, did any of you ever been to youth camp? Let me tell you, if you want to see all things Pentecostal, go to youth camp. And if you want to see all things Pentecostal squared, go to Arkansas youth camp, 10 miles from where the original opera house where the Assemblies of God was born is. That's where the youth camp is. It is wonderful. Um... The gift of prophecy is the most needed gift in the world we live in today. People who will step into a moment and speak God's word. Not just God's Bible, God's word, God's principle, God's virtue, God's, God's judgment, God's wisdom, God's that's prophecy. You say, well, no, it's a word of wisdom. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. A lot of those fall under sort of the heading of the gift of prophecy. Jane, what were you going to say? Exactly. Yeah. Well, it hadn't been written down yet like that. So, and Peter manifests a boldness and a courage and a conviction and a knowledge and an ease of speech that he has never had. And that's why I say he's operating in a gift of the Spirit in that moment. And so can you. It is, a, it is an outpouring. It's the Spirit of God, all right, pouring out through Peter as he begins to speak. And he begins to challenge exactly what it is that is happening in their world. And very quickly, he directs them towards the story of Jesus. He, uh, he, he talks to them about Joel's prophecy. I want you to notice something here too. 
uh, at the end of this. He says in verse 17, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall do what? Prophesy. Okay? And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Now, couple of things here. When he says, um, there's a couple of interesting historical pieces here. I've got to find out where I put them here. When he talks about upon my handmaidens and upon my servants, um, here it is, even upon male and female slaves, uh, which is what servants actually mean, doulos in the Greek, um, God would pour out his spirit. In other words, uh, Brother Horton says that, that the Spirit would pay no, no mind to social distinctions. Young, old, rich, poor, every race, every kindred, every tribe, every tongue, every social setting, every education level, all of that, none of that would make any difference. One historian writes that, well, first of all, we don't believe there were any slaves among the 120. At least there are none that we, can, that we know about. But a full 20% of the population of the Roman Empire were doulos slaves. 20% of the Roman Empire. And in many areas, slaves composed as high as 80% of the population. So when the Lord says, I'm going to pour it out upon slaves, that's a bunch of people. We sometimes think that that's a social distinction that he's making. It's not. He's addressing the population demographics of that day. And he says, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon everyone. That's the point. It is a slaves would be saved. They're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Free people are going to be slave, uh, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. There's not going to be any distinction upon any of those. And here's, here's what I want you to I want you to get back into the moment now for a second. These 120 come out and they begin to speak. And they begin to extol the Lord. And people hear this. They hear it. They're from every nation. And then in the midst of that, Peter stands up and he preaches this sermon. And he quotes from Joel 2, 28, 29. And then he he brings them to this moment where he begins to talk about Jesus. And I want you to notice that At first, he talks about Joel's prophecy. And then coming on down into verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Now, every, I say everyone, the preponderance of those there were devout men, and they would almost certainly know the prophecy of Joel. They would have heard it before. This is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. It's like saying, hey, remember that thing that Joel wrote about? You're seeing it happen. There's an instant sociological, theological, there's a connection instantly to them where they go, ooh, I've read that. This is that? And it poses and it, it affixes in their mind a question. And I think they begin to look around. I want you to think about the fact that everyone standing there, and I know this is going to sound weird, everyone there had a home somewhere. Everyone there had a job. Everyone there combed their hair that morning and... 
I think sometimes when we think about the fulfillment of biblical prophecy, we, we somehow make that sort of a mystical moment, sort of an otherworldly moment. But Dana, these were real people who had walked there probably. They were probably lodging in some little guest house, sort of a room that some, some uh, Jerusalemite had made available. Maybe, maybe some are even what we would call camping outside. There's a million people in Jerusalem. Not all of those are staying. There's, some of them are staying in rustic sort of settings. They have come to the temple. They are regular people. They're devout, but they're just people. You got it? And they are there ordained by God to be there on the moment that the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the 120. If we go back into the list of those that Jesus has picked, there's not a nobleman in the bunch. They're scoundrels. They're, they're the, and I don't want to overdo it, but they are not the cream of the crop scholars. They are not, I mean, they're zealots. They're Gentiles. They are, the, you see what I mean? There are, no, there are no Pharisees. There are no priests. There are no, these are fishermen and physicians. Physician that's writing this. These are zealots and, and tax collectors and regular people. And the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. And that 120 among them, Peter stands up. The most regular of the regulars and begins to prophesy and I just want you to get this that he is pivotal in the plan of God in that moment he is the through his old and I picture him burly old gnarly sun baked face you know what I mean ruffian kind of kind of kill them all, let God sort them out kind of a guy, you know what I mean? Rough old fisherman hacks off the ear. Remember, he's the guy that tries to cut off the Malchus's ear. He wasn't naming for his ear. He was trying to hit him in the top of the head and missed. This is this guy. And he stands up and God uses him to birth the church right out of his lips. Now, what's that mean to you and me? God's not looking for super saints or some sort of highly decorated, polished. He's just looking for willing, open hearts into whom he can pour his spirit and empower them to be his prophetic word wherever they go. And I believe we live in a day where God's looking for those people again. And I believe he's positioned our church to be a voice like that in a world that is increasingly just saying they're drunk because they just don't understand the language. Do you understand that tongues is very clearly in the Bible for the unbeliever, not for the believer? The Bible says that. Tongues are for the unbeliever. Prophecy is for the believer. When, it, when it's interpreted, excuse me, prophecy, when tongues are interpreted, it becomes like prophecy. And it's something that draws unbelievers to him. A crowd gathered when they heard them. And I just think that we're living in a day where God wants to do this again. I'm not looking for the tongues of fire and the rushing wind. But for just regular people to just open themselves in a very genuine, heartfelt way and say, Father, 
I want all that you have for me. Fill me with your spirit. And then let the Lord do what he wants to do. And then stand up in places of business and in, in, in commutes to work and in relationships and just say, Father, give me the right words to say to bring this person to a moment where they accept you. That's what Peter does. He just stands up and opens his mouth. And in the moment that he needs them, the words come out. He is more eloquent. He is more powerful. He is more convicting than he has ever been. He is more used than he has ever been. And he says, men of Jerusalem, men of Israel, hear these words. Verse 22, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He doesn't mince any words either. He goes right at them. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and now he starts quoting David. This fisherman now quoted Joel, and now he's quoting David. For I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. And he doesn't say, well, quick, somebody grab a scroll. And what is that next phrase? No, he's anointed. It's just coming out of him. It's the Holy Spirit speaking through him. There's no indication that Peter has this level of Old Testament knowledge ever before this moment. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, verse 27, or let your Holy One see corruption. Peter goes on. He says in uh, verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God... Had... And then Peter uses this almost Paul-like argumentation. This is in Scripture now. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh seek corruption. This, do you hear that? He's arguing very eloquently for Jesus having been raised from the dead. That's prophecy. That's the voice of the Lord speaking through this uneducated fisherman. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh seek corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promises of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out, on, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He goes through this and he says, look. This is what the Lord promised. In verse 39, he says, For the promises for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words that we don't have recorded, in other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. For those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, there's a really interesting what if in verse 41. Anybody see it? Do what? It says that all who believed were what? In what? 
That's the what if. We don't know. Is it water or is it the Holy Spirit baptism? It, it's in, now watch this. Because of what happens in the church, the more I've studied, the, the more I tend to believe that he preaches to them. And much like happens later on in Acts chapter 10 in Cornelius' house. Do you remember what happened? Remember in Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10 during his sermon? What happens to them? They start speaking in tongues and they're all Gentiles. And Peter's like, I didn't even get to the, I'm I'm making this up. I didn't get to the altar call yet. What are you doing speaking in tongues? He doesn't know anything about how it happens. Watch this. Later on in Acts 15, and I, until you see that baptism there, this makes more sense. He, he's confronted by the brethren in Jerusalem. Basically, they say, what are you doing going to Caesarea? And what are you doing baptizing Gentiles? And he said, look, guys, they were baptized in the Spirit just as we were. Is that a reference to the fact that Hey, look, I was preaching, and just like it did on the day of Pentecost when the 3,000 were there before I got preaching, they started speaking in tongues. Same thing happened to the Gentiles. Argue with God about it and leave me alone. That's what I think happens. I think while he's preaching to the 3,000, because do you know it doesn't say, and they were saved, and they cried out, and they asked the Lord to... No, it says that... And those who received his, and do you notice, look at, the, look at the capitalization or lack thereof on the word his in verse 41. Do you know what that indicates in the language? Who is the his? That's Peter. If it was God, it'd be capital H. All right? That the language substantiates that this is Peter's word that they've received. And when they received what he was saying, they were baptized. Now, I don't know about you, but it'd take a while to put 3,000 people under the water somewhere. And this happens like that. John, I think the Holy Spirit falls on the 3,000. And 3,000 of them accept. Now, there may have been many more than that there. Remember, there were some that said, these people are drunk. But 3,000 of them accepted what Peter was saying. And I think like that, the Holy Spirit falls on them and they begin to speak in tongues. Just exactly like what happened in Cornelius' house in Acts 15. Sort of kicks our, our routine. Okay, everybody come forward. All right, we've got to get the music right. And then we're going to let... No, 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 you can't speak in tongues yet. I haven't laid my hand on you. No. If you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit, ask him. Just ask him receive what he said and say Lord I believe and just let happen what happens I just think that there's some things here that's why I said what I said sometimes I think we've I have I've adopted a particular way that this story happened and the more I study it the more I go "Ah, maybe it happened a little different than I've envisioned it I think the 3,000 are filled with the Holy Spirit that day why do I believe that because suddenly the church explodes in growth and it suddenly begins to spread out all over Asia Minor it begins to spread out all over the then world how's that happen because there were men from Cappadocia and Pamphylia and Phrygia and and all and they leave Jerusalem at the end of this feast and they don't just leave Jerusalem having watched the day of Pentecost 
They leave Jerusalem having experienced Pentecost. And they go back out to where they are. Now filled up with the same spirit that prophesied through Peter. And they go back to who, where they were. And they begin to do the same thing. And the church explodes across Asia Minor. And across Africa. Have you ever heard the story of David Livingston? David Livingston, one of the pioneer missionaries in Africa. And one of his early reports is that he, he was one of the very first modern missionaries to go into Africa. And the report that he sent back is that when he got there, there were already Christians there. And there was no record of any, any, you know, any European-based missionary having ever gone there. Most people believe that through, some people believe that it was the Ethiopian eunuch in Philip's story that we'll get to eventually. Or it were these at the day of Pentecost that have taken the story of Jesus back to these nations. And they didn't need European missionaries to get there. The gospel had gone there at this date and continued to grow long before Europeans ever got there with the gospel message. What's all that mean? Anybody worried about our nation today? Anybody worried about what's going on? I think all we need is a genuine Pentecost once again. I'm not talking about, I'm not even really talking about services, I don't think. I'm talking about men and women getting down on their face and just saying, without any preacher telling them anything, Lord, fill me up with your power. Fill me up with your word, your word that comes from the written. The written will keep me in bounds but let it be alive in me and let me speak when I'm at work and with my kids and with my grandkids. And I believe that as that happens, um, the same thing will happen as happened before. There is a latter day outpouring promised in the scriptures. Amen. And, and if we're there, all right. Now, and with that in mind, look at these last few verses here. Uh, that, that, uh, uh, uh a little bit earlier that Peter speaks about. He says, listen, in verse uh, 39, he talks about the promise being for you and your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. A little earlier he had talked about, uh, let's see, where is the sun? There it is, verse 19. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Why is that listed there? It's interesting. All right, I want to show you something. Um, I want to, let me see if I can get to the, the section of scripture that I'm remembering right here. Hang on just a second. Let me see if I can do it. Uh, Matthew speaks about the sun being turned to blood before that great and notable day of the Lord comes. You know that it's in the, it's in the, in the gospel of Matthew. And then in 1 Corinthians 13, there have been those throughout history that, that for, in order to identify them, theologians gave this movement the name of cessationism. And the people that practiced it were called cessationists based upon the word cease, something ceased, stopped happening. And cessationists believed uh, sort of two different things. One of them was that only the 12 apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues on the day of Pentecost. And that with the death of the last one of them, which we believe would have been John, that this sort of manifestation stopped. It ceased. Cessationist. 
Why does this thing about the day of the Lord and the sun being turned and the moon and signs in the heavens and the day of the Lord coming, that, that same day is referred to in Matthew. And the scripture, and I just want to touch on this, that cessationists most often use is in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Um, And they, they go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7. Now, if I were to ask you, I want you to be careful. I just want you to think. Don't answer. If I were to ask you what, well, I think you all, if I were to ask you to give 1 Corinthians 13 a title, you would say the what chapter? The love chapter. It's the love chapter, all right? That's good because it talks about love a lot. But does anybody know what the general theme of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 are? All three of those chapters, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, are very specifically giving... Telling us what? Did I tell you last week? Oh. Man. See, that's what happens when you speak to a lot of different people during the week. You forget, you know, this isn't true. You forget what lie you've told to who. You got to keep... No. All right. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 are, are sort of operating rules for the gifts of the Spirit in corporate worship services. Okay? Real quickly, and I've, I've told you this before too, but, but you, you know, we got new people and some of you have forgotten it. All right? This may have been last week too. All right? The, um, if this was last week, I think. Now I can't remember if it's that. Now you, now you done messed with me, Miriam. All right? Did I talk to you about the word uh, that the word charismatic comes from? That was last week? Well, what was the word? No, what was the Greek word? Ah, yeah. It's the Greek word charis. C-H-A-R-I-S. And it's the word that charismatic or charismata, which is the word that is interpreted for signs. Charismata. And the root word of that is the word charis. And that's the word interpreted in the New Testament as grace. So all of the gifts operate in, and the root of that is grace. It's not supposed to be abrasive. It's not supposed to be weird. It's not supposed to be something that causes people to run away from the Lord. It's supposed to cause them to run towards him. All right. But in this section of scripture, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, most often cessationists go to 1 Corinthians 13, 7, and where it says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And cessationists would say that the collection of the scriptures, the, the canon of scripture, when the, when the Bible was put together in the form that we have now, perfect came and the gifts went away. Well, here's the problem with that. <laughs> Every time that that which is perfect coming is referred to anywhere else, it's not talking about the Bible, it's talking about who? Talking about Jesus. And in, in this section of Scripture, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter's talking about when these things are going to 
they're going to be applicable up to a certain point. He talks about the day of the Lord, the sun being turned to blood. and the. Did you hear that in, in Acts 2? Same thing in Matthew is referred to. In all of those times when those kinds of signs are referenced, it's not talking about when the Bible comes to be. It's talking about the return of the Lord to the world. And I don't mind telling you that I don't care if I speak in tongues when I can look at him in the face. Amen. I don't need prophecy. I don't need the gifts. I don't have to be a witness anymore. I can, you see what I mean? I've, I've arrived. The, the day of the Lord has come. So I just tell you that because when you run into people and you don't, I don't hear it much anymore because so much of the world has embraced Pentecost and they have embraced Pentecostal theology because primarily because of the missions world. Primarily because of the things that are going on around the world in missions and the way that Pentecostal theology and the genuine revelation of God through signs and wonders has caused millions of people to come to the Lord around the world, not so much in the United States, but around the world. All of a sudden, about five years ago, the Southern Baptist Convention put out an official statement that it was all right for their missionaries to speak in tongues. Do you know why they said that? Because so many of them were. They didn't have a way to get around it. So they changed their cessationist viewpoint and said, it is now okay for... Now, what I wanted to ask him is, what do you do when they come home? <laughs> you know what I mean? What do you do with them when they come home? They're not going to stop. Let me, let me end tonight with this. What's the purpose of the gifts? This is the advent of them. Peter... We'll, we'll hear some more. We'll see some more. We'll get down to Acts 8 and 10 and then 18 and some other places. And you're going to see different manifestations of the gift used in a powerful way. All right? Let me, let me give you just a real simple closing thought. And that is that when Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, But you shall, be, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses. In, and I've said this before, I wrote a paper that got spread around the, the, a few places in the assemblies not too long ago when I was working in my doctorate work. And in the paper, when I was writing this, I had written the whole paper and I had gone back to write the introduction. And it was, Sue will remember when I went to, we were invited to go on that cruise with Convoy of Hope. And it was an Alaskan cruise that Convoy Hope, it was a fundraising deal and because we'd given them some money and, and it was a cooperation between Speed the Light and Convoy Hope and we had already made a big Speed the Light pledge and Pastor Eric set it up and Leanne and I went and I was in Seattle and I had just finished writing that paper and I got up early one morning and I went for a walk in downtown Seattle, which I love. We used to live in Tacoma. I love Seattle. With all of its craziness, it's just a great city. And I was walking, and even early in the morning, there were, there were couples walking who were of the same sex. There were multiple uh, gay pride signs. Leanne and I intentionally ate breakfast in a, in a restaurant that had a big gay pride flag, and it was run by, uh, by lesbian women. And, um, but they made a great breakfast. <laughs> And, and I engaged them in conversation because I wanted to. Um, there were uh, drugs are, marijuana is legalized, and there were multiple places as I was walking early that morning where there were 
people that were completely sort of buzzed out of their head, uh, even early in the morning, sitting on stoops. And, and so it was just a place where, where there was a lot, and listen, I, I don't have any room to judge anybody. And when I say, so when I use the word judgment, I'm not talking about of sin. I'm talking about my judgment was that there were a lot of people there that needed Jesus. And I'd just written this paper about Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit asked me a question as I walked. He said, what does your experience in Pentecost have for these people? What he meant by that was my traditional church-bound in the building expression that really only makes sense to people who have grown up in it and that know all the language and that know all the oh that's just sister whoever don't worry you know and who are comfortable with that and the Holy Spirit was pretty clear with me he said what what does your experience do for these people they're not coming to your building ever or anywhere near one like it. And nobody, and this is the way the Holy Spirit spoke to me, nobody of your group is coming to them. So where's the witness? I was in tears as I walked back to the hotel we were staying in. And I thought, Lord, I got to rewrite this. And the rewrite is what got published because it was a pretty, pretty introspective look at our our Pentecost. Pentecost is intended everywhere you read it to empower us to get outside of this building, in the workplace, in the places where people need Jesus and manifest his gifts in a way that fits there. It's not supposed to be a secret language and a special club that we're all in that only fits in this room over here. It's supposed to be a place. It's supposed to be a thing. Now, is it good for it to edify believers? It has to edify believers, but that's not all. It's supposed to be something that interrupts our grocery shopping. That's the one that always comes to mind. And our commuting and our coffee breaks where the gift of prophecy begins to flow through you or discernment or wisdom, and you disappear and Jesus appears. And people are drawn to him as the substance of their lives is laid bare. I long for a very nervous thing when I think about it, but I long for the day when somebody in one of the services that I'm responsible for says, the Lord has a word. There's a woman here. There's a man here. His name is Randy. <laughs> and the word of the Lord to you is this. Or, how do I say that? Do you remember when, why do I say that? Do you remember what happened? <laughs> All right, look in the New Testament, the times when the Holy Spirit gave words of knowledge and the all right, and I'm not suggesting that this is the particular one I want. But Ananias and Sapphira sell a piece of land. And they bring the price of the land up. Remember this? And 
the Lord speaks to Peter. I sometimes get Peter and Paul confused in the stories in the book of Acts. And he said, how much did you sell the land for? Now that's getting pretty specific, isn't it? Not, there's somebody here and they're in pain. Watch this. There's somebody here and they're in pain. Where are you? Raise your hand. Eight hands go up. You see what I mean? I'm not saying that that's not God. I'm just saying that if it's the God I'm talking about, he, he knows some stuff. You know what I mean? I just think there's more. And I think the Lord wants to do it in people. And I want to be a part of it. And I said, how much you sell the land for? This much. What has caused you to lie to the Holy Spirit? Wasn't the land yours when you sold it? You could have kept it all. You could have. But because you have lied to the Holy Spirit, first the husband, he falls dead. And the real moment for me is when the wife comes. And how much you sell the land for? I just think it would have been awesome if she had told the truth. And he said, good job, girl. That lying husband of yours, he's gone. (laughs) Uh, That's the Holy Spirit. The specificity, the power, the, the, the way that God uses it to draw unbelievers to him. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. That's what happens in Acts chapter 10 in Cornelius. That's what happens later. That's the power of God that spread out all over the place. And I think that's what he wants to bring to the day we live in. How do we appropriate it? We ask. We believe. Lord, use me. And then I happen to believe that the Lord doesn't start you out at raising the dead level. All right? You get, you're obedient in small things. I told someone today, um, sometimes I think you have to be willing to make a fool of yourself. You have to step out in a way that exposes you. I don't think the Lord starts you out that way. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've driven by somebody broken down on the side of the road and I'm in a hurry and I go, might just blow right by them. And then the Holy Spirit says, turn around. And I'm like, come on, that's not God. That's just me. I need to turn around. You ever had that happen? And then you turn around, you go back and they're already gone. You ever had that happen? And you're like, oh man, Lord, couldn't you have? I've actually had the Lord, I think, impress me. I just wanted to see if you would be obedient. You know, they they were just making a phone call or something. I mean, I don't know, but I think the Lord starts you out small. And as you're obedient in small thing, he makes you Lord over much. And it grows. So how do you appropriate that kind of belief in what the Holy Spirit can do through you? Start being obedient to those little nudges, those those little things that you feel. And uh, I think the Lord will let that grow. And... uh, let the Lord do what he wants to do. Jane? We experienced that, that type of detailed prophecy in the services in Brownville. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I think that's what the Lord wants to do. I think he wants to use regular people. Uh, I don't think it'll be, I mean, I think pastors need to be revived, but I think, I think it's when people that aren't professional ministers when they become infused with the power of God and it begins to spread out all over them, my goodness, anything's possible. Father, we love you tonight. We want it. I want it.
Revive your church. Pour your spirit upon us once again. Let the latter rain that the Old Testament speaks about, let it, we, it doesn't have to be just us, Father, that's presumptuous. In fact, it shouldn't just be us, but let us be a part of it. I don't want to miss it. I don't want us to water down your gospel. I don't want us to not get the ear to your Holy Spirit. I want to be exactly what you want us to be so that the lost might be one, so that we might be powerful witnesses, Lord, proclaimers of your word all over the world, and then the end will come. That's what you said. The gospel will be preached in all the world, and then the end will come. If that's going to happen, Father, it's going to be through the power of your Holy Spirit. Use us to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.